Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 19th of November 2023, 9.30 service. Ruth Henson speaking on Psalm 10. So, as we've heard, we're continuing our series looking at the book of Psalms and have reached Psalm 10, having studied Psalm 9 with Katie last week. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Psalm 9 and 10 are joined together as one psalm. Psalm 10 has no title, author, or musical instruction of its own, shares some themes with the preceding psalm, and resonates with other psalms written by David, which has led some scholars to concur with this decision to unite the two. But many other psalms are also without a listed title or author, so this is not conclusive evidence. Scholars also point to the fact that Psalm 9 is one of the psalms with an acrostic pattern, where each verse begins with succeeding letters from the first half of the Hebrew alphabet, and recognise that this pattern continues to a lesser extent in Psalm 10, where one section has verses which start with successive letters from the second half of the alphabet. Again, not conclusive. We will never know for sure whether David wrote both psalms and meant them to be united as one, but we can certainly see why they have been separated, because there is a marked difference. Psalm 9 is a hymn of thanksgiving, while Psalm 10 is an anguished lament. The two psalms, whether they are separate or two halves of one whole, rather seem to complement one another. Psalm 9 celebrates the certain triumph of God, while Psalm 10, as we will see, bemoans the apparent, albeit short-lived, triumph of the wicked, who feel no need or want of God. Psalm 10 is what's known as an imprecatory prayer, pulling no punches and containing brutal honesty and an earnest call for God to bring his justice to bear on the wicked. C.S. Lewis said that reading Psalm 10 is like throwing open the door of an oven that is set to 500 degrees. You immediately get hit full in the face with the heat of the psalmist's fury. And Martin Luther declared that there is not in my judgment a psalm which describes the mind, the manners, the works, the words, the feelings, and the fate of the ungodly with so much propriety, fullness, and light as this psalm. Well, if those two great scholars and theologians place so much importance on Psalm 10, we'd better crack on and explore what it has to teach us. We'll look at the cry of lament in verse 1, the characteristics of the unrighteous in verses 2 to 11, the call for God's justice in verses 12 to 15, and confidence in the Lord in verses 16 to 18. So firstly, the cry of lament in verse 1. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? These are the anguished opening words of the psalmist, be it David or someone else. If we are honest, I'm sure we can all think of times when we felt like this, 
whether we actually voiced it out loud or not. Perhaps you can remember a situation you found yourself in where you desperately needed God and cried out to him, but it felt like he was a million miles away. Or a time when you urgently desired him to make something right, change your circumstances, save the day, but he chose to act differently or seemingly not act at all. If, like the psalmist, we can think of times that we've indicted God for his apparent lack of response, then we are not alone, because there are plenty of examples of this throughout the story of the Bible. One example that sprang to my mind was that of Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus. Both sisters, in turn, rail at Jesus, that if he had only been there, their brother would not have died. But Jesus knows that his miraculous actions at this later time will be a far more powerful witness to God's ability to rescue and transform the bleakest of situations. But aren't the psalmist and Mary and Martha and all the others who make a similar outcry to God in the Bible just complaining? What is it that categorises their plaintive outpouring as lament? How do we know if we're complaining or lamenting to God? I like the story of a man who joined a monastery where the monks were only allowed to speak two words every five years. After five years, they were given an audience where they could utter their chosen two words. At the end of the man's first five years, the novice monk simply said, bed hard. At the end of the 10th year, the same monk said, food bad. Then at the end of the 15th year, his two words were, I quit. In response, uh, the head monk said, I'm not surprised. You've done nothing but complain ever since you got here. For the most part, complaining is seen as a negative habit and nobody likes complainers. But there is a difference between grumbling and bringing our complaints before God in lament. Lamenting involves expressing our fears and concerns to God humbly and honestly with the hoped-for outcome of an increase in assurance and trust. One commentator says, lament is not about getting things off your chest, It's about casting your anxieties upon God and trusting him with them. Mere complaining indicates a lack of intimacy with God. Because lament is a form of prayer, it transforms our cries and complaints into worship. Undergirding biblical lament is a relationship between the lamenter and his God that is close and deep enough for the protester to speak in imperatives addressing God as you and reminding him of his covenantal promises. To lament is to be utterly honest before the God whom our faith tells us we can trust. Biblical lament affirms that suffering is real and spiritually significant, but not hopeless. So, if we can relate to the psalmist's outcry, 
and can reflect on times when we've spoken or at least felt similar frustrations. Let's take heart that Bible passages like this assure us that it's okay to ask God these why questions because we have permission to be honest and open before God. God is both big enough and loving enough to receive and respond to the laments of his people. We shouldn't forget that he even heard such a cry from his own son when Jesus exclaimed on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting directly from another psalm of lament, Psalm 22. The striking thing in all these verses and passages of lament is that the questions and cries of those in distress are turned towards God for answers, reasons and assurances, rather than rejecting God and turning away from him. The root of the word question is another word, quest. As we turn to God with our lamenting questions and cries, we demonstrate that we are on a quest, still looking to God for the answers and assurances we need. And indeed, these questions where we ask God why can play a vital part in deepening both our understanding and our faith. And now we see the main contributing factors to the psalmist lamenting as we read about the characteristics of the unrighteous. I've used unrighteous for the word translated by the NIV as wicked. The Hebrew word being used is rasha, which means someone guilty of a crime. In this context, the psalmist is talking about those who have gone against God's will, broken his holy law, failed to live up to his perfect standards. The word wicked makes us think of extreme cases of this, like murderers, terrorists, abusers, etc. That's why I use the word unrighteous instead, because we are all included in those who are rasher, because we have all failed to live up to God's perfect standards. We all have times when we put ourselves on the throne in our lives, rather than letting God have his rightful place there. As it says in Romans 3 verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. And in verse 23 of that same chapter, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I knew I would more likely acknowledge being described as unrighteous rather than wicked, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that, hence the choice of title. But that doesn't change the fact that when we hear the word wicked in these verses, it's not just about them. It's talking about us, too. So what are the characteristics of the rasher, the unrighteous? Us. In verses 2 to 4, the psalmist focuses on arrogance. Arrogance is a form of pride, and pride is one of those more subtle sins which it's easy to allow to remain in our lives unless we are very open, honest and strict with ourselves. When we think of the word arrogant, we tend to equate it with being snobby, snooty and stuck up. But it's more than that. 
it boils down to being more concerned with yourself rather than others. We will think of our way as the best way, that people ought to take our feelings into account more than someone else's, that it's wrong when things happen in a way we weren't expecting. Those are familiar feelings, aren't they? But they are all signs of pride creeping in rather than following the selfless example of Christ. According to the psalmist, all that matters to those who are proud and arrogant are the desires of their heart, what they need and what they want to do. Surely, that is the prevailing attitude we see all around us. If it feels good, then go for it, because you're entitled to it, and no one can argue with that. We shouldn't be surprised that we get sucked into believing this and feeling the same way, because it's everywhere around us. Advertising, social media, movies, TV programmes. But it is still pride, and it isn't God's way of doing things. In fact, the psalmist points out that such an attitude leaves us with less or even no room in our lives for God. When our thoughts and time are consumed with all that we need and want, where is the space for God to be at work, transforming and directing? How often do we find ourselves too busy for time with God in prayer or in his word or even to come to church? As it says in James 4 verse 6, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Next, we read in verse 5 that the wicked are prosperous. That really rings true, doesn't it? How often do we feel like the psalmist, that those who are evil and corrupt seem to get away with so much and end up living the life of Riley? But we need to remember that for those who fully reject God and his laws, this transitory worldly prosperity is all they have to look forward to. They have no store of treasure in heaven, but rather, like the man with his bigger barns in Jesus' parable, they will be left empty-handed when it comes to eternity. They also have a false sense of security, as we see in verse 6. This is another sign of the creeping power of arrogance, which has led those described by the psalmist feeling invincible. Nothing can shake them, nothing can harm them, or so they think. That mindset can creep into our thinking too, expecting that God will keep our lives free from troubles and trials. But God never promised that. In fact, just the opposite, as he is repeatedly open about the tribulations which will come. His promise instead is that he will be with us in those situations. For example, in Nahum 1 verse 7 where we read, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But the arrogant don't believe they need God's care. They believe that their accumulation of possessions and power will insulate them from trouble. They believe that if they could just have that bit more of everything, then they would be fully secure, fully at ease, fully trouble-free. But this is a false sense of security, because God is only a refuge 
to those who have chosen to find their security in him. Then, in verse 7, we see the psalmist describe the vile speech of the wicked, which is full of lies and threats, with trouble and evil under their tongue. Again, this is a warning we should all take to heart. In the book of James, there is a whole passage on taming the tongue, which James describes as a restless evil, full of deadly poison. So much hurt and trouble can be stirred up by the rumours, gossip and hurtful comments which can spring from our tongues, even at times directed towards our fellow brothers and sisters in the church. We need to ask for God's help to keep our tongues under control so that what we say is always honouring to God. In verses 8 to 10, the psalmist describes the horrible acts of violence that the wicked commit, especially directed towards the weak and innocent. These are the acts of those we easily think of as wicked and evil, the murderers, terrorists, abusers, etc. Acts which we are quick to condemn along with their perpetrators. But we should never forget that when we allow our thoughts and words to be filled with hate and darkness, even if we would never think of turning these into action, we are still on the same road. As Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And then in verse 11, the psalmist's final thought about the wicked is the false hope that they have, the rationale which allows them to act as they do, the fact that they believe God has forgotten about them, so will never notice what they get up to. What a contrast between the opening verse and this one, the lamenting believer who fears God has forgotten about him, and the wicked sinner who vainly hopes and takes false comfort in the idea that God has forgotten. How often do we act as though God can't see what we're up to? Someone once challenged me to imagine sitting beside God while he watched a CCTV recording, not only of my words and actions, but also the internal monologue of my thoughts too. A sobering thought. After considering the wicked at such length, it's now time for the psalmist's call for God's justice in verses 12 to 15. By this point in the psalm, we see the progression that has taken place. From the soul-searching and lamenting why questions of the opening verse, via the spelt-out complaints regarding the wicked listed in specific detail, we now see that as a result of his honesty before God, the psalmist is in a place where his cry to God is optimistic and hope-filled. He boldly calls on God to rise up and act, and the why questions he asks now are not lamenting ones, querying God's presence and protection, but rather incredulous ones regarding how the wicked think they can get away with their actions 
without being called to account by God. Rather than worrying as to whether God is watching over him, having felt that God had hidden himself and kept himself at a distance, he now confidently states that God sees the troubles of the afflicted and considers their grief. And he doesn't just see and consider, he intervenes personally, as the phrase, take it in hand, makes clear. Those who otherwise would not be found out, those who seem to get away with a raft of wickedness and injustice, will be held to account. Those who suffer can commit themselves to God, because he is the helper of the fatherless. This is very similar to the process that Jeremiah went through in the book of Lamentations. He was filled with why questions as he listed his grievances to God. But in the end, he forces himself to meditate on what he knows to be true, as we heard in our second reading. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Then finally, we see the psalmist's confidence in the Lord. In these closing verses of the psalm, the transformation in the psalmist's perspective is complete. From bemoaning the apparent absence, disregard and disinterest of God in the opening verse, he now finishes in words of praise and worship, where he focuses on God's kingship and powerful protection, alongside the tender care which goes hand in hand with this. The progression he has gone through finally allows him to declare with confidence that the Lord is the eternal king who has power over those who act in wickedness and injustice, whilst also describing the way that God hears and listens to our cries and desires, encourages us and defends especially those who are weak and helpless. Let's allow that confident declaration to speak into our cries of lament and into our why questions. But let's also allow that confident declaration to challenge our lingering unrighteousness, our arrogance and pride, our untamed tongues, our acting as if God's not watching. There is not one moment in all of history that God is not king. No matter how hard life seems, how dark the days get, how much evil seems to prevail, God is still in control and he will be for all time. This recognition that God reigns should produce endurance and hope within us knowing that, even if evil seems to abound, God's judgment and justice will come. And as we trust in God's eternal kingship, 
let's allow him day by day to sit on the throne of our hearts and increasingly live with him as our Redeemer King. Amen.